where we are today with the pandemic is not stri- simply the result of the bungled response of the Trump administration. It stems from a much longer um, sort of a legacy of defunding of the public sector as a whole and a shift towards a market-driven society um, that, 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 that left us you know, where we are. Welcome to Medicare for All Week. For today's episode, Phil and I are sitting down with a returning favorite from last year's series. Dr. Adam Gaffney is a practicing physician, writer, public health researcher, and advocate for single payer. He is the most recent past president of Physicians for a National Health Program, and he practices pulmonary and critical care medicine at the Cambridge Health Alliance, as well as uh, teaching at Harvard Medical School. Adam, welcome. It's so great to have you back. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, this is long. This is long overdue. It's it's good to talk to you again, and it's also like, thanks for taking the time to catch up with us. I know you've been pretty swamped. It's been a very uh, interesting year to be a critical care doctor, uh, which is <laughs> which is never a good thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for real. You don't want you don't want interesting years for for ICU medicine if you can avoid it. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, In our last discussion last year, we talked a lot about the past battles for single payer, uh, the current battle for Medicare for all. We touched on the way that the question of labor and labor power factors into it. But this year, we're hoping to frame the series from a more forward looking perspective. It's all about, you know, how would a single payer program like Medicare for all be a valuable tool in building a larger movement for health justice and equity, you know, moving towards something better for everyone. So I guess my first question, which is an obvious but really important one, uh, how have you been holding up during COVID? You're, as you're saying, uh, your scope of practice is directly relevant to the pandemic. Well, it's a very, um, I mean, look, I'm, I'm very fortunate compared to um, so many people in this country. Uh, obviously, all the people who's, who's, who've lost their lives, the family members of those, of those individuals, the friends, um, and then all of the massive economic dislocation that this has wrought and the job loss and insurance loss and um, all of the, the, the harmful ramifications. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate um, in every way. Um, what I would say, is that um, it has been very, you know, odd in a way to sort of have my policy interests and and um, political concerns so directly tied in to my um, practice, which which mm-hmm. isn't you know typical. Um, and obviously, you know, I, the sort of policy issues that we think about with healthcare um, justice and reform issues of uninsurance and underinsurance. I mean, all of these things we see the, the downstream effects of um, in the ICU. Make, make no mistake. Um, but um, but it's 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 always a little more removed or not quite as tied in with with the sort of um, what's in the headlines at that particular moment. So so it's been um, for me, it's been a moment where I've been. You know, I'm in the intensive care unit uh, on average every other week, um, and then I've been trying to use my other time um, to sort of, um, you know, understand and address um, some of the health sort of equity implications, and specifically with a focus on healthcare implications of all this. So yeah, it's been a um, it's been a very um, strange year, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's really unfortunate that that the the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic is such I guess, blatant demonstration of the urgency f- of this policy that you've been working for many years on pushing. Do you feel like with the pandemic, this has brought like increased awareness of how, you know, how helpful Medicare for all could be um, within your peer community or within like the medical profession at large? Um, I, I do. I don't have sort of hard survey data on that question. 
but my sense and anecdotes suggest yes. I mean, you know, for one thing, I think, um, you know, one of the things we focus on the most when we talk about Medicare for all and the need for national health insurance is sort of more on the access side, which is the critical right. and the most important. Right. Um, and that's uninsurance and underinsurance and ability to go to the doctor's union and all that. And we can, and I'm sure we'll come back to that a bit. Uh, but I think one of the aspects of, um, of the need for national health program that the pandemic has brought out uh, is something is connected, but it's, it's sort of uh, related, but, but it's separate, right? And that's on the supply side. Um, the fact that um, we, without a national health program, you tend to have sort of market chaos, right? I right. mean, and this was seen in every aspect of the response. Um, and some of it was just sort of willful disregard and incompetence <laughs> by the Trump administration. But some of it is, is, you know, in all fairness, not Trump's fault because it predated Trump, right? Right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that we don't necessarily have healthcare facilities where we need them, uh, but we always right. have them in a way they're profitable, that's that's a sort of you know downstream consequence of the way we finance healthcare. The fact that some health facilities are very well resourced and others are not, and it just so happens that those that are not are in poorer places or disproportionately treat people of color, um, that's a ramification of the health financing system. The fact that hospitals have no great way of sort of sharing resources, personnel, PPE, ventilators. Mm -hmm. I mean, these things came together in an ad hoc manner. And in fact, that amount of cooperation, um, you know, I think might actually reinforce the need for health, um, you know, a health program. Uh, but I think it, it's the, the pandemic certainly laid bare the need for um, planning, you know, and planning, you know, I think became a four letter word in sort of the neoliberal era. But when it comes to and it's not good, you know, you don't want planning when it comes to like, you know, re neighborhood restaurants. But when it comes to healthcare, care, uh, planning is actually uh, needed and we don't have enough of it in this country. Well, I was really curious. You wrote this essay in uh, in dissent, I think, back in the summer, because you sort of talked a little bit about how actually what was happening kind of on the ground and the way that your the sort of ICU began to work kind of with uh, other hospitals actually kind of illustrated the the value of planning. Can you talk a little bit about that? I, th I thought that was really fascinating. Absolutely. So, you know, in addition to some of the, the my clinical work in the ICU itself, I've I've sort of played a role, um, you know, in um, d d helping with um, logistics in terms of moving patients um, to where they need to be, cooperating with other hospitals to get patients where they need to be. And, you know, the reality is not every hospital has all the um, tools that it needs. There's some very advanced technologies. You know, you may have heard of ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, and, you know, which is a sort of artificial lung. Um, that's only available in, 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 in certain hospitals and in only limited numbers. Um, and the reality is when you have something like a pandemic, um, hospitals can't function on their own. I mean, you need to think of it as a system, a regional system. So, yeah, I mean, we were involved with hospitals in the, you know, in this sort of regional area um, and um, conference frequently. Uh, this is actually still ongoing. Um, and, you know, to coordinate where patients are going to go when beds are tight, when technology is tight. So, um, and that happens other places. So I'm not trying to, you know, exaggerate the extent to which it was it was in any way unique to to Massachusetts. Um, so yes, I mean the pandemic made clear um, that you do need, um, you know, systems and you do need planning and you do need coordination and that, um, you know, coordination and not competition mm -hmm. is really intrinsic to the healthcare mission. Uh, and I think that this made that clear. Yeah, I mean, I keep thinking about if we had gone into this pandemic with Medicare for all established, right? Like, how many things would be so much easier, just both in terms of like, for example, like uh, portable medical records, right? I keep I keep thinking about this. I have some doctors who are on the Epic system, and I have some that are on proprietary systems. And you know, during normal times, it's a pain in the ass to make sure that everybody's on the same page. But the pandemic has made that so much more difficult. And you're you're also like seeing this, I think, um, well, at least like anecdotal anecdotally speaking, where you have patients that are perhaps like seeing a urgent care physician getting a positive test for COVID and being given anti antibiotics right off the bat, right? And that uh, there are sort of these like errors in communication and errors in charting that are also happening just as a general result of the disorganization. And I feel like there are so many small things like that that would be changed just through 
simple coordination just through the removal of all these different pass-throughs that you know basically exist between the the provider and the patient. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think I mean another way another manifestation of this that I think is going to become increasingly obvious is in the vaccine rollout. Um I think there's mm-hmm. there's a little question that a, you know the a fragmented system as it is um Regardless of what you think about prioritization schemes, because I'm becoming, I'm sort of coming to think of that as less important than the fact that we don't actually have a sort of health service to bring this to the people where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that whatever the prioritization scheme is, it's going to result in inequities because uh, because of that. Um, and I think that's, you know, that, that remains to be totally shown, but I think it's, it's highly likely. I mean, so, Adam, one of the things that I remember reading that you had written, I, I can't remember if it was before or after the pandemic started, was you did this little analysis of like just how much public health funding as such has like cratered in the United States. Um, and it just it occurred to me that like the even the way that we think about that, uh, the way that we define public health uh, as such in the United States is so limited because we don't have a system like uh, like a single payer uh, system. So like the way that we think about the resources and facilities for public health is like hived off even conceptually yeah. from the way that we think about individual medicine. And so that that like it just introduces all of these contradictions when you begin to face uh, a pandemic. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, the underfunding, uh, I mean, it, it, it introduces contradictions, as you say, and just on, on a pure resource level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we, you know, the proportion of total healthcare spending that goes to public health is massively inadequate. We've been undercutting public health for, for many years. And I think, and that has resulted in, you know, job losses and inadequate. So, cause the reality is, is, you know, most of public health is actually, even though we think of the CDC a lot and Fauci is always in the news and so on, um, it's really the local and state health departments that are doing the sort of majority of the the kind of boots on the ground work that you need, um, whether it's test and trace and contact tracing or whether it's um, or whether it's some of the vaccine logistics. Um, and so the fact is that we need to recognize that where we are today is not, and I don't think, you know, the, I, I'm guessing we probably all agree on this, but like that where we are today with the pandemic is not stri- simply the result of the bungled response to the Trump administration. It stems from a much longer um, sort of a legacy of defunding and, uh, of the public sector as a whole and a shift towards a market-driven um, um, just society um, that, 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 that left us you know, where we are. I think that if a better president had been in power, it would have ameliorated some of this, but it wouldn't have eliminated it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I think too easily um, people just dismiss the situation that we're in now on like, oh, Trump, bad, you know, therefore pandemic response bad but it's so much more complicated because healthcare is just a conversation about the allocation of resources right and we're seeing strains on resources across the board um especially when you think of like hospital capacity and the fact that you have these regional sort of choke points where you have more um let's say hospitals with a little bit more liquid capital on hand because mm-hmm. maybe they're in a wealthier neighborhood offering nurses like five, $6,000 a week if you'll just travel out of your county into ours because we're short-staffed because COVID. And then you have the, the fact of the matter is, is the rural hospital can't afford to offer the same. And you have this movement of expertise and of labor power away from where it's needed the most. And we're, you know, we're seeing constantly uh, sort of the worst case scenario effects of both like the trend of like defunding the public sector, but also like hospital consolidation and the shift of like a, you know, a profit model for hospitals that's very dependent on like, you know, really lucrative surgeries. And and it's just laying bare how unsustainable our current system is really, because when you have it stressed at all, which right now it's under a lot of stress, but even just a little bit of stress, um, really tips the balance and it becomes immediately obvious how cruel and and unequitable it is. 
I mean, I think that you put that really well. I mean, and I think I I have a very similar perspective. I I wrote a piece for the Baffler uh, a few months ago, um, sort of on this issue, um, because we often, you know, in recent years, there's been a lot of discussion about sort of the issue of high sort of hospital prices, meaning like what hospitals are able mm-hmm. to charge private insurers, which is which is a problem and is a very real thing. But what that kind of sort of discussion misses is a couple of things. First, um, it misses the fact that there is these big disparities in resources, as you outlined, between hospitals. Yes, there are certainly hospitals that have bigger budgets than they need to to provide care to their communities. But there's a lot of hospitals that don't have enough resources to take care of the people in their communities, right? And mm-hmm. that's a, absolutely an area where you saw COVID, um, you know, once again, expose that, right? I mean, there was this one... Um, a very simple analysis in JAMA that basically just compared like total COVID um, hospitalizations in different boroughs of New York with the number of hospital beds uh, in each borough. And if, you know, you follow the sort of New York stage of the pandemic, there was a general sense that some of these hospitals that were wet, less well-resourced were much more overwhelmed, right? And um, mm-hmm. and I mean, I think it's sort of not surprising that would be the case, but like that happened. And Okay, and, and why are the why are there these giant you know disparities uh, in resourcing behind hospitals? Um, there was another article in Health Affairs, sort of more recently, that um, you know it's just it's, and, and this sort of ties into what I do in terms of care unit medicine. And we don't really usually think of intensive care units as like something that's you know we don't usually think of it in terms of disparities for for, for various reasons, mostly good ones. But but this article just showed that like they looked at communities and the number of ICU beds per capita, and they compare that to the community's median income. And they found that, you know, poor communities um, were much, about half of the poor communities had no ICU beds, right? So that's obviously going to have a big impact when it comes to response. So, and that kind of ties back into the planning issue, which is we don't have healthcare facilities necessarily where we need them. We have them where they can turn a profit. Um, and second of all, um, healthcare facilities are not always financed according to community need. They are often financed according to community um, means. And so we have, you know, what I refer to as um, supply inequality, um, which mm-hmm. is, you know, sort of what it is. It's pretty obvious. Um, and it actually, it, it's connected to, but not totally the same as kind of what we might refer to as demand inequality, which I don't like the term because it uses demand in the way that economic, the economists use it, which is to mean that like, if I have more money, I can have more demand. But like, functionally, what it means is that people um, don't necessarily, aren't able to sort of um, um, get the same regard, even if they're living in the same place and have access to them hospitals, a, a less well-insured, a lower-income person is unable to get the health care that they need um, according to their medical needs um, because, of, because of that. So there are these two inter- very tightly interrelated, slightly separate concepts. Yeah, that, that's helpful because I feel like at the beginning of the um, pandemic, a lot of the the, the way that you know, almost from the beginning, people started framing uh, the sort of implications of COVID-19 for the Medicare for all kind of debate was like, oh, well, what's going to happen when X percentage of people lose their insurance? But in a way, it goes so much deeper than that, because it's about uh, whether or not people can actually receive um, Mm -hmm. care in in their normal uh, sort of like place of residence and like how far they have to go and like are there going to be adequate resources there just just on the the basic kind of supply side um, even before you get to the question of uh, how they're going to fare in terms of insurance coverage exactly exactly and, th- and those are the two sides of the coin and in many ways both of those both sides of the coin are like you know I don't know what the right word is, degrading to some extent or getting worse <laughs> in the sense that, I mean, on the demand side, and again, it's a weird way to, I, I don't like the term demand for this, but whatever it is, what it is, um, you, you know, there have been falls in uninsurance with the Affordable Care Act, as we all know, you know, about 20 million people gained coverage um, that's been attributed to the law. Um, but there's been a gradual rise um over the you know since the beginning of the Trump administration, there has been a rise of about 2.3 million people losing insurance. So that's actually getting worse, at least for the last four years. And then, of course, there's the whole underinsurance pandemic. You know, we're up mm-hmm. to about 44 million people underinsured. Although that that number is like very 
specific. It's a specific definition of underinsurance, and it actually excludes both children and elderly. So when you hear mm. that, that number, it actually doesn't include the Medicare population or kids. It's only working age adults. It comes from a Commonwealth Fund survey. Um, so that's on sort of the demand side. But the supply side, there's been a lot of studies that have shown again and again that, you know, communities like, you know, the closure of hospitals, you know, is disproportionately impacting sort of rural communities, of course, we know that. Um, but also like, just like, the, you know, primary health care and, 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 and um, you know, it's, if you just look at like, you know, even at the, the one study of like Philadelphia and different communities within Philadelphia, and it correlates, you know, where there's no primary care doctors correlates with, you know, a higher proportion of um, minority individuals. Uh, I have another study looked at, and looking at trends in time, looked, found that, um, you know, nursing homes were closing disproportionately in poor communities. So, so it, there's inequality in our, everyone knows that inequality is rising in society. We usually think about inequality in terms of economic inequality, rightfully, because that's the big part of it. Um, economic income inequality is has been growing since the 1970s, late 1970s. But I think the rise of health inequality, although people are sort of familiar with it, doesn't get as much emphasis. The, mm -hmm. You know, life expectancy between top and poor, you know, p between rich and poor has been widening. And, you know, healthcare access in a way has as well. My, you know, um, the my colleagues looked at this looking, going back, to, I, I wasn't involved in the study, but going back to the 1960s, they found that these sort of medical expenditures for poor versus high income versus low income, which is a measure of their overall use in healthcare, um, the, the, you know, the, the, there was sort of a gap. Um, and it actually narrowed sort of after Medicare, Medicaid, and the civil rights era into the 1970s. But it's, it's sort of been growing again, suggesting that we're moving towards a system where more and more we're allocating services um, in healthcare sort of generally on the basis of means, not needs. Well, that's a real, that seems really important because I, I feel like one of the frustrating things for me about this debate and the way that it plays out, um, you know, both you know, to the extent that, that you see like a, sen a Senate budget committee hearing or, or, or if it's just sort of like discussed, you know, briefly on, on the news, is that it, it the debate over Medicare for all almost sorts uh, sort of gets narrowed down onto like sort of one outcome of interest uh, versus another. Either people are just talking about in terms of like, you know, how much more or less is this going to cost or uh, <laughs> how many more or less people are going to be uh, insured or, you know, insured at an adequate level um, uh, or it's, you know, some other kind of very, very narrow uh, kind of thing. But I think what you, you know, what your your work sort of both sort of in the clinic and also your your research kind of show in this really interesting way is that um, it, it's wrong to sort of be a reductionist in the way that you think about the the value of Medicare for all. Sure, it makes it maybe easier to talk about because you can like recite a single statistic or like it's going to do this one thing. But in a way that that kind of, um, you know, even just focusing on, for example, like economic inequality uh, or even just health inequality has a way of um, kind of delimiting the way that we talk about the possible benefits of it. No, I, th I think you're right. And I think this is a, you know, a larger issue about messaging and, uh, as well. You know, it's like, I remember during the, um, uh, 2016 primary debate, you know, when um, Clinton and, and Bernie were sort of debating about health care, you know, one of the things that Clinton said during one of the debates, and I'm sort of paraphrasing roughly here, was like, well, look, we already got 91% there, meaning 91% of people <laughs> have health coverage. Like, why don't we just go the final 9% rather than sort of starting from a, starting all over again. Right. And, and I, and I apologize to Clinton if I've, if I've mangled that <laughs> paraphrase too much. Um, but I, I think that's basically accurate. Um, and there is a sense in which like some people think that that's like all this is, a, is about is like, Oh, let's just plug in this one hole, you know, the sort of 9% mm -hmm. that have kind of, you know, fallen between the cracks. We need to find some sort of solution for them. And, and no, I mean, it's, it's the, the more I sort of learn about healthcare, the more I realize it's it's not just about covering the nine percent who are uninsured, which is absolutely important, and it's not even just about um, eliminating financial barriers for everyone else, which is also absolutely important, and it's not even just about you know getting rid of restrictive networks, and it's it's also and it's it's also about other things. It's also about the you know actual justice when it comes to the supply side, when we talked about already. Um, it's also about the fact that fragmentation is a fundamental defining feature of our healthcare system, right? The 9% 
that we hear uninsured doesn't do justice to the reality of of what people in this country go through, which is that far more will have interruptions in coverage at some point. Far more will have changes in networks that suddenly they, they suddenly realize they're getting bills they didn't think they would have because their insurance longer covers that provider or that hospitalization, or they can't even fill the prescription because it turns out that that drug is no longer covered and therefore they has, have a delay in starting that medication and who knows, wind up in an intensive care unit because it was insulin, right? Um, and, you know, I think the more sort of you are immersed in the healthcare system, and I don't need, I'm sure the two of you have both first, may have first and secondhand sort of um, um, experience of this. You realize that it, it is the, 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 the fragmentation in of itself is, is such a fundamental pillar of like our healthcare system that does so much damage. Um, both psychologically and physically to people and financially. Oh, for sure. And there, there's like the additional knock-on effect of the fact that this fragmentation also prevents us from being able to collect usable data in order to try and like mitigate some of these things. One of the... Uh, one of the issues that I've experienced a lot in my own advocacy is people have been like, well, we, you know, we don't collect this data, so we'd have to start collecting it first before we could change anything because without the data, we can't measure success or failure of the program because, you know, like, and I get that, like, you have to evaluate whether or not policy interventions are successful. However, like, I feel like often, you know, <laughs> we completely lose out on on tons of useful data just from the simple fact of, of there being so many insurers. We could use billing data to get a better idea of general health need in order to try and better allocate resources. It would be even better if we had some sort of comprehensive like American NHS, but better, obviously. Um, but even just like if we were just passing like Medicare for all and long-term care tomorrow, um, you would all of a sudden have information about how many people in America have autoimmune diseases, which we don't study. You mm -hmm. know, how many people are like actually filling their prescription for their inhaler every month. And this is the kind of planning that that healthcare really demands, especially when so many things like make you sick, not just uh, regular viruses, right? People's homes are making them sick. We can't we can't necessarily realize that someone's water is making them sick. But if we had Medicare for all and all of a sudden you start to see this data come through for a particular community, what better canary in the coal mine than, oh, my God, there might be something going on here and we need to direct some emergency resources towards, mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, like making sure people aren't being poisoned by their air, water and house. I think that's a great point. I think that it a, a single payer system does have advantages that goes beyond the expansion of coverage or even the sort of planning of infrastructure that we've talked about. Um, I think you're right that it does give you tools to better understand the health of the population. I mean, incredibly so, right? I mean, you can understand not just a sample of the population, but the, the population itself, um, which is a rare you know, um, uh, it's hard to do that. You know, I think an exa another example of a way in which um, a universal system can be very useful and that pertains um, explicitly to the pandemic. Um, you know, I don't know if you followed this sort of story with some of the clinical trials that have been done um, for severe COVID, um, you know, that was found in this trial that steroids are sort of life-saving. Have you two heard, of, heard, about, heard about this at all? Yes. No. Yeah, we've been. Oh, well, Phil hasn't. So please. And probably listeners haven't as well. But so please give us a little overview for. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, when the pandemic hits, there's obviously um, an urgent sudden need to know what drugs work, what drugs don't work, what treatments work, what don't work. Right. Um, and um, and those of us on the sort of provider side are unsure. You know, we know um, a lot about mm -hmm. um, viral pneumonia, acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is what severe COVID basically is, ARDS. It's a severe inflammation of the lungs, um, often causing lung failure entirely. You know, but, but there wasn't adequate um, knowledge. And to get good, hard information on what actually works, you, of course, need randomized clinical trials, because all the observational data is always sort of just um, um, there's just too many factors and it's hard to know what to make of it. So you need randomized trials. Um, and so, you know, they start and there's some that's, that are done. Um, but in the UK, they launched something called the recovery trial platform. Basically, it allowed them to very rapidly, very quickly, very efficiently run 
basically national level randomized trials, mm-hmm. you know, in, in some cases enrolling up to like a quarter, I think, of the um, total COVID population. And they were able to get sort of big answers to critical questions at a sort of a rate that, you know, and a sort of robustness of data that no one else was. So I use the example of steroids, dexamethasone is a sort of steroid. Um, you know, I'm trying to remember when they actually published this. I, I want to say it came out in May. I think it was uh, in like, yeah, I think it was like mid-May. Mid-May, which is incredible. Which is astonishingly fast. Astonishingly it's so fucking fast. fast. Imagine if we had something like that here and in the UK. What if we had an yes. international version? Imagine what we could exactly. fucking do with that. It's like, well, right. oh, sorry. And it's such a lot. No, I mean, it makes me upset too because the reality is the recovery trial found that steroids have a big life-saving impact and we weren't using them for the most part before then. Right. That was massively life-saving. Like, and it's sort of, it's hard to even, like, like based on their data, like, you know, many, many, many lives have been saved because we know that steroids work. And there was concern before that trial came out that steroids may even be harmful. No one knew. We weren't sure. So anyway, um, you could have done that on the national level in the United States if you did something similar. You need an investment, again, in public health resources and 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 and, and research and, and, and direct investment in research. Um, but I, I definitely think it would have been very hard to pull this off in the fragmented U.S. system. They were able to do it across their whole system within, again, from, I think they launched it in March and had results in April and had thousands and thousands of patients. Um, and the thing is, is we're so much bigger than the U.K. that had we done something similar, because you need to get a certain number of participants in order for the trial to, to be able to show something. But we're such a bigger country that we could have actually had the answers to those kinds of questions much quicker than they could, just by virtue of our size. Or we could have asked different questions, um, mm-hmm. and we could have known what would work and what would not work. Um, so that, I think, is another example of the way. And, and so our trials have been much more fragmented, smaller, uh, taken longer, uh, and, and so on. And uh, a lot of them are just launched at, like, you know, one hospital or a few hospitals. And they just don't give the kind of data that that, that can. Adam, I'm wondering, you know, one implication, I think, of what you're saying is that the – I think the way that we've seen the traditional political constituency for Medicare for All is, you know – People who are insured or underinsured, um, you know, there's the sort of the history of like labor campaigns for uh, single payer, uh, which is, you know, uh, fragmented, too, in, in certain ways, um, as we've seen in the past year or so. But I mean, I think one thing that B and I have been talking about, um, you know, in the, in the last you know few months, especially, is that. You know, once you start to begin opening up these arguments and seeing all of the different potential impacts of of Medicare for all, the potential constituencies seem to grow. And and, and there seem like a lot of uh, latent constituencies that that maybe haven't been like tapped into because we haven't necessarily talked about it uh, in this way. And I'm wondering, like, what your sort of experience or you're sort of like looking into this range of benefits, like what that tells you about like like potential, you know, uh, uh, sort of sectors of, of support that we maybe not, m- might not have thought about before because we're thinking about this in a different way? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think the med- – I mean, we've talked about this, I guess, in, the la- in our last time I was with you, but I do think the sort of medical community uh, is a sector that – um, particularly physicians, you know, ha- has been discounted too frequently. And I mm-hmm. think that um, I, I honestly think this pandemic is, and this sort of contemporaneous sort of trends in the political economy of like physicianhood is going to um, alter that, um, you know, with the consolidation that Beatrice mentioned, the fact that physicians are increasingly uh, employees, um, the fact that many have seen um, you know, the kind of um, impact of, of lack of coordination um, and lack of integration, um, uh, the way it's played out, um, I think that's going to generate um, more more support, growing support. I, I think the, um, I do wonder, um, you know, this is a very narrow constituency and it's not, not going to make the difference. But I do think, you know, in, in regard to what I was saying about this sort of recovery trial and all this, you know, that like the um, the medical research community to a greater extent too, um, you know, could potentially see the the benefits and the and the possibilities of of a, of of, a, of an integrated system. Um, you know, there's probably many other constituencies constituencies that we can think of. Um, those are the two that come come to mind, probably just because where I'm I'm situated personally. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's like a huge capacity for. <laughs> potentially reducing some of the errors that we've seen in in the COVID response as well. I, I mentioned um, 
people being prescribed antibiotics right away <laughs> when they um, all of a sudden, you know, they have a positive COVID diagnosis. Maybe they have a cough. They're in an outpatient setting. And part of what's been happening, it seems, is like there's a there's so much misinformation about COVID. There are, especially in the United States, we're kind of like patient zero for a lot of the the quackery that's going on. And mm-hmm. like what we're seeing is like actual harm being done on patients. I have a friend who does critical care in New York and he was saying that, you know, some of the patients that he sees are in the ICU because they were given the wrong medication in the beginning. And this is going to, these kinds of errors are going to happen, right? Like error happens in medicine. However, I feel like this sort of like disjointed, um, fractured healthcare system is like actively contributing or actively impeding the transfer of knowledge at a time that it's so important. Yeah, I mean, I think what this gets at is a much broader point, which is, you know, this comes up in sometimes in discussions about sort of single payer and what it can do and what it can't do. And so if you have a sort of big group and you kind of talk pe- talk to people about like about single payer, a lot of times a variety of issues come up that are sort of not sort of directly related per se to healthcare financing, like for instance, what you're bringing up sort of patient safety or quality um, or research or these other things, you know, these things that are sort of tangentially connected or not even tangentially connected to healthcare, but sort of tangentially connected to healthcare financing. And I think the broader point to be made is, is that whatever the specific problem is that you're dealing with, whether it is research, whether it is data, whether it is quality and, and errors, as, as you're re- referring to, Beatrice, um, a single payer system is not going to suddenly solve them in the sense that, like, there's not going to, you know, there's going to be medical errors under every, there is medical errors sure, in every, medic, every, every healthcare system. But what it does do is it gives you a framework to address them systematically, not just uh, locally. And I think that's sort of the broader point here. Totally. I mean, I think that's a great point. It's like designing a healthcare system where the finance model doesn't get in the way, which is our current situation that we have now, where it's like we have all of these other issues that are being exacerbated by the fact that we have an inefficient and frankly cruel finance model that sort of supersedes everything and gatekeeps access to the various components of the care infrastructure in the United States. Agreed. Yeah. And I also feel like it, it sort of, uh, it contributes to its own, um, uh, stability in a way because it, it does make it harder for people to know who to blame when things go wrong. So it allows errors to persist, uh, potentially for much longer that there are fewer, you know, uh, adequate like feedback or, or, you know, accountability mechanisms. Uh, well, and I, and I think that's a very good point, right? I mean, we don't need, you know, it's very easy to know kind of in a country with like a reasonably well-functioning single payer system, like where the problems are and it generates a constituency that can push to fix them. But like, you don't even really know wh- where that is in the United States, right? <laughs> like, so if there's like, you know, a shortage of like MRIs in a region and whatever, country X, um, that's an, that, that, that is known. It's a problem. Politicians can be pressured. The problem can be fixed. Life can move on. I, I, you know, we don't even know where those kinds of, or, you know, maybe someone does it's buried in the medical literature, but it's certainly (laughs) no one's job to like actually do anything about it. Right. And even if there was someone's job to do anything about it, they couldn't, they couldn't do anything about it because we don't actually have the tools that would allow someone to say, all right, well, we need more MRIs in Tucson. Uh, I don't, we probably don't need more MRIs in Tucson, I'm guessing, but that's just like an example of, um, of, yeah, you know, the problem. And then that's also why it's important to have a system that includes people across the class spectrum. Um, you know, um, the way the world is now, um, wealthy have more power, and that's not going to change immediately. Um, and if you have a healthcare system that includes um, people who are across the income spectrum, um, that actually helps you to ensure that those quality shortfalls, those issues um, are, are, are addressed. Um, unfortunately, right now, we we have a society where um, poor people's programs often, you know, just simply get neglected um, and the problems within them don't don't get addressed. Yeah, I mean, it's what what's the phrase? Rising tide raises all ships, right? It's a, for some people in our current system are just like anchored and then drowning. I, I think it's just... It's absolutely, um, I think, obviously exhausting day in and day out to be like inundated with all of this like horrible, scary 
COVID information, right? But it, I think, you know, it's a, such an important time for us to be talking about these things because I feel like more so than now, it's much easier to convince people of the urgency. You know, often where I come from with my own advocacy is like, like I'm a patient myself. So people who are also patients gravitate towards like what I'm talking about because it speaks to their own experience. But, you know, I do get pushback from people who say, well, you're only doing this because like you need XYZ medication and all these people need insulin and you guys should all just get a job that, you know, pays for it. And if you don't, if you can't get that job, then like you're shit out of luck. You know, this is the American way. And like the, the, I guess the silver lining of COVID is that that's really dropped that out of the conversation for me. I'm not hearing that from people as much anymore. It's sort of reframed things away from this idea of the binary between like the well-insured person and the underinsured person, which I think, you know, as we were talking about is sort of a limited picture of what's actually going on because looking at just like simply like how the finance portion is being allocated doesn't give us a full picture of actually what's going on in people's lives. And before the pandemic, I mean, you did research looking into like, for example, like how health disparities contribute to respiratory, chronic respiratory diseases. And we're seeing that be, you know, exacerbated by COVID. Do you feel like this is a moment where we can push for something more than Medicare for All? Because I really feel like we need to be pushing for an American NHS and we need to be pu pushing for Medicare for all that includes long-term care, because as we've seen, congregate settings are not compatible with our pandemic situation. So I think there's a, there's a number of like great points um, tied together there. Um, so first, I mean, I do think there's a window of opportunity here to, to be very um, ambitious. Um, first of all, I think, and, and I'll get to your point a little more directly in a second, but I think, you know, we I think there is a coming crisis um, that may have been temporarily averted, but that's going to hit us in terms of health coverage. Okay, and what do I mean by that? Well, there's been obviously lots of job losses um, and insurance and private coverage losses. Um, now we don't know exactly how many people have been left uninsured by that. The data is a little spotty uh, for a variety of reasons. We don't have a, a sort of standard survey for 2020 yet. Um, but it seems like, at the very least, Medicaid has stepped in in a major way to prevent many of those people from, from, from becoming uninsured, right? Um, but at the same time, states are seeing pretty de desperate um, you know, budget shortfalls in the, in the coming months, right? We know this. Um, we, I, I think that states are going to be increasingly squeezed and i am very worried what that's going to mean for their you know decisions for the medicaid population um mm -hmm. and, and 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 the adequacy adequacy of funding for medicaid um i think that the only answer is going to be a federal solution um or at least you know something on state level that 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 goes beyond the current system so long long way of saying i mean there, there, this you know, even if the economic skies begin to improve, let's just say best case scenario in the coming months relative, I think there is a huge sort of crisis ahead of us um, in, in terms of health coverage um, that's going to grow. Um, and so anyway, that's just just a preliminary point. I, I think to go you know beyond that to your question of like, is this a moment to start thinking bigger than Medicare for all? And I like I like the emphasis and I like the idea. Um, what I would say is, is sort of a couple of things. I, I would keep in mind that the Medicare for all proposal that um, is, you know, let's just say in PNHP's sort of proposal and that to a lar very large extent is incorporated um, in you know the Medicare for all legislation in the in, in in Congress, but particularly in the House, goes beyond um, sort of just pure kind of public health insurance uh, to a greater extent than I think is often realized. And so, what mm -hmm. do I mean by that? So, a couple of things um, in both the PNHP proposal and the Med and the House legislation, um, there are there's a separation of um, capital and 
operating expenditures for globally budgeted hospitals nurse and nursing homes um mm. and that's a very big change okay what that would mean would be that the system and you know part of the reason why the just as a side note the physicians for national health program was called that um instead of physicians for national health insurance or physicians for national health service it was called pnhp to sort of try to get a little bit away from this sort of national health insurance, national health service um, sort of dichotomy and binary and dispute and kind of and kind of go outside of that. But what but but to go back to just to go back to what I was saying, um, a system where um, the program sort of makes decisions about where new health facilities, new capital investments are going to happen, expansions, new buildings, new beds, new boards, a system that is making those allocation decisions, um, you know, on the basis of need. Um, and that is then funding, um, you know, hospitals, not according to each patient that comes in the door, you know, mm -hmm. service provided, fee for service, but on a global budget model. Okay. That is a step well beyond just a sort of Medicare for all narrowly defined as like a better Medicare for everyone. Okay. Because what that means functionally is that profit has been taken out of the system entirely. Um, that, you know, hospitals no longer actually generate a profit in a global budgeted system. They are paid, a they are paid a budget for all of their operating expenditures. And if they, if they use less than that, they don't get to keep the money as profit. It just, it goes back to the government. Um, and separately, new new investments and new expansion occurs. Um, and furthermore, the PNHP proposal specifically, um, and to some extent the House proposal actually as well, uh, explicitly takes um, uh, excludes for-profit companies from sort of taking part in the system at all. Um, and then the PNHP proposal explicitly involves buying them out. So why am I sort of saying all this? I I'm saying it because I think, you know, some of the ways there's a little more of a um, gradient between national health insurance and national health service systems than is sometimes perceived. Mm -hmm. And so we can we can absolutely call for things that go beyond just sort of replicating fee for service Medicare for everyone in the country that I think captures some of the most important things of a national health service. I really appreciate you getting um, into you those. can envision even going beyond that. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's helpful. It hadn't been framed to me in, in quite that way, or I, I hadn't I hadn't thought about those dimensions of it. But it's I yeah. I, when you look at the entire legislative package, it's more I think yeah than just than just financing. Well, it's so important because what we're really lacking more than anything else is a cohesive, comprehensive system of care. Like it's it's a fiction to try and break it up into like healthcare payer or healthcare finance versus healthcare admi administration or or planning right like these are all components of one big uh gigantic process which interfaces with people's lives from birth until death and it's like an absolute fiction that we've sort of taken these like disparate parts out of like a, a process and a relationship that that's built over years between an individual and their own care and said, oh, no, like, you know, the insurance is separate and the hospital is separate and the doctor is separate and the payers, you know, contingent on work. And the then you have the PBM and you have all these like fictitious, like socially constructed barriers that we've put in, which like really at the end of the day, like do nothing <laughs> for patient outcomes. Um, and, and really I think we can do away with, I think that there, there's so much room right now to be rethinking how we are allocating resources, which is really what healthcare is all about. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the ways, you know, we talk about global budgets a lot, um, in PNHP and the importance of globally budgeting hospitals. And we, and this will tie in with what you just said, but I just, just to explain. So just for the audience, a global budget is sort of the way you pay a house, a, um, school, right? So schools don't get like fee for service for every like time a teacher takes 10 minutes um, with a student. They don't like write a bill for that. And, like, <laughs> I mean, that's what the, how healthcare works, right? So like, the way, if, if you were to finance schools the way you finance healthcare, like, every like the teacher, like all through the day would be writing bills for every like little thing she or he did. Um, and then they, they, you know, the hot, the school will be then charging the parents like co-pays as a proportion of those bills. Right. So you, you can envision like it, it would be a dystopia. Um, so a, a go budget is like more of the schools paid where the school gets a, a lump sum of money from which it 
takes care of that, you know, provides education to all the students um, in, 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 in its community. Um, and that's, you know, also how, you know, it's like a fire department gets paid. It's how VA hospitals get paid. It's how Canadian and British hospitals get paid. Um, and we often, you know, sort of talk a lot about how that results in a lot of administrative streamlining. Because you could imagine if a school was paid fee for service, that like that would like the half a teacher's time would come from like you know submitting and like are bargaining over these like dumb bills it would make no sense. And like that's absolutely true. And like if you if you moved a sort of school to a public school to a sort of hospital model of like billing, like, you know, a quarter of the school's budget would just go to its billing department. And like, so those like efficiency arguments are very true, but putting that aside for a second. Um, oh, and, and just to be clear, the, you know, the data does support that about a quarter of you of hospital, of, um, of hospital revenue in the United States goes into administration, which is twice the proportion <laughs> of, of, of Scotland or Canada. Um, and, um, Part of the point of re-envisioning the hospital as a globally budgeted institution is not just a sort of efficiency argument. You know, going back to what you said about sort of elective procedures, right, and how like this sort of shortfall of elective procedures produced this like big, you know, fall in hospital revenues and they were laying people off this year. It didn't make any sense in the middle of the pandemic. Um, you know, part of the pro part of the reality is is that if you did pay hospitals a lump sum to take care of their whole community they could aim services at those things that are needed by the community and not necessarily those that happen to be sort of separately billable lucrative things so community programs and outpatient care and inpatient care and all the kinds of things that you know some of which may, may programming that may not even be sort of able to be billed to an individual patient a, a hospital mm -hmm. could do all of those things and it could sort of take on a more holistic character as you're suggesting um as opposed to a um you know well what are the specific services that 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 sort of you know reimburse well? Not that every hospital does that, but but you get the idea. Um, so that that's why I think rethinking not just who is paying, but sort of how the payment is made is important. Yeah, I think that's such a good point, and I really appreciate you getting into that because that's that's one of the things that I think is one of the strongest reasons why. I uh, prefer the House version of Medicare for All because it's not simply about uh, just disrupting the one, you know, fiscal relationship. It's about reframing what our priorities are when it comes to patient care, which is like for a very long time, we've had a system that pretends that it's it's markers for success or health outcomes. And that actually is not the case. At the end of the day, it comes down to to cost. Right. And and I, I think, you know, it's funny because at the beginning of the pandemic, I think a lot of people were under the impression that we would sort of be like saved by some fantastic pharmaceutical <laughs> intervention or discovery that would happen um, or, you know, the vaccine would come out and everything would be fine and we'd go back to normal. And it's been really telling that like the vaccine development and research process was uh, accelerated by the fact that community spread was completely unmitigated. But these uh, fancy technologic uh, cutting edge pharmaceuticals have not materialized. It's been pretty old school stuff that seems to be helping proning steroids. You know, uh, NPIs are very effective. Lockdowns are very effective with fiscal support, of course. But, you know, we're I think we're so trained to associate good care with clean medical aesthetics that we sort of have created this translative process where like people only think of like good care as like you know being somehow related to the hyper profitable systems that we have of care instead of thinking about the small interventions like mold removal and how much that can do to improve an entire community and and so you sort of see like an opportunity, I think, in COVID to like reframe the priorities of of our entire care system, not just like from an infrastructure standpoint, but in terms of like how people think of their own care and how people think of their relationship with their doctor and their hospital. These are opportunities for community building, but right now they're not used that way at all. And it's it's um we're under <laughs> we're underutilizing something that could be a great resource just because of the the system of, of extractive capitalism that basically dictates that these things have to be part of the market when they really shouldn't be. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with, um, I agree with, with 
your points. I mean, I think the other thing I'd add is, you know, going back to the whole um, medical research side, and I was emphasizing, you know, how a sort of system sort of might help you do something like the recovery platform, but also just that um, you're right that when you were getting out with the sort of intervention, sort of pharmaceutical and non-pharmaceutical interventions, um, that currently, you know, there's very limited relative resources for doing, say, randomized trials of um, of non-pharmaceutical interventions because, right, there's not much money to be made there um, or to, to study new uses of old pharmaceuticals, right? And that's ultimately a public goods problem. And that's why we need public financing of much more medical research and of much more medical trials because um, the pharmaceutical industry is, is, is not going to fund trials that is not going to make it wealthy is the simple reality. But I think the larger point here is that public, you know, we, if we want to have, if we want to improve the practice of medicine, I think we need to triple down on our public investment in research, uh, including in, you know, publicly, publicly funded clinical trials. Yeah. What would your call to action be for physicians who feel like they want to to get involved in like trying to advocate for this? Because I, I hope that some people are listening right now and they're like, wow, this would be a much better job condition to work under than the current system where I have to deal with all this coding and billing. You know, I, it, physician advocacy was a huge, like a huge driver of support for original Medicare. You know, you have the capacity to influence patients, you have the capacity to influence the community. Doctors are considered to be, um, you know, leaders in the community. And I feel like it's really important for more, as many people who like work in this profession as possible to get involved because you guys really do know what you're talking about. You do this day in, day out. I think that when it comes to Medicare for All activism, we sort of all have our own niche um, because at the end of the day, we can all, you know, there's no question that you are often most able to sort of speak to uh, speak to other, the concerns of people within your community. It's often true, right? So I think there's no question that you know um, one of the key areas for physicians. Um, although I think we we have a role to play in sort of educating the public and in sort of participating in this sort of political discourse. I think education within the medical community is absolutely essential, and it's a lot of what the sort of you know, it, it, it's a lot of the sort of bread and butter kind of work that I've done for physicians for a national health program has been education within the physician community. Um, and I will say that, I mean, you know, 2020 started off really good <laughs> that way. Um, you know, I, you know, it's funny just thinking back a year ago, how long ago it feels, right? Um, it feels like yeah. a decade ago. Um, the year started off, I mean, you know, the primary was still ongoing. It was sort of a very hopeful moment. I don't need to, I'm, I know everyone knows this. <laughs> I don't need to remind you <laughs> what happened in January. Uh, but um, I'm just setting the scene a little bit. We wound up actually, um, you know, publishing this sort of full page ad in the New York Times uh, with all the sort of names of um, physicians from across the country who's, you know, saying that like, it's, you know, time to stand for Medicare for all. And that, that coincided the same day um, as the um, American College of Physicians, uh, which is the nation's second largest uh, specialty society. It represents internists. Uh, American College of Physicians came out of the position statement basically endorsing universal health care and endorsing Medicare for all explicitly or, um, or single payer as like one of two ways to get there. Um, and yes, you know, like as a single payer purist, I, I would have preferred if Medicare for all was the only way, but like, <laughs> but like still, like that's like, that's like a huge win. Right. And, um, a huge win. Um, mm -hmm. society for general internal medicine followed, followed, um, suit, um, later that year. Um, and that was, that was, you know, back in, I guess, February, I want to say. Um, and so, I mean, there has been progress in this. And I think that that kind of, that, though the, the fact that the ACP switched gears, you know, that wasn't something that happened overnight. That's something that happened as a result of God knows how many years and hours of people within it um, pushing for it. And obviously the work that people have done outside of it. But, but you know, that's an example of where, you know, all of us can make a difference. So yeah, if I was like an ophthalmologist who was in favor of Medicare for all, I, I would probably, you know, do work within um, among ophthalmologists to some extent and within the ophthalmology society and, um, you know, push to get them on board. And those things, you know, I mean, 
I think sometimes we get into a situation where we're kind of looking for the one big trick to like achieve <laughs> Medicare for all. Like this one thing will do it. And at the end of the day, as we know, it's a you know a massive. Um, it's going to be a massive battle, and it is going to be you know perhaps one of the defining political struggles of our time. Um, and it's there is going to be no one thing. It is going to be an enormous amount of work both sort of traditional activism and intellectual work and grassroots um, advocacy and sort of every level you can imagine of people working towards this goal. And so um, for each of us, that's going to be something different. Um, but each of the, po the points, each of the parts, each of the, the pieces of the puzzle is going to ultimately be necessary um, to sort of achieving the ultimate you know, win. That's such a great point. I mean, I feel like so often, yeah, you do hear people like just waiting for oh well what's the one thing do we need like a purity test vote yeah what's the miracle what's the organization that everyone has to join and then we get there and it's like i get that desire right because this is something that people really want and people really need um but at the same time like both from the standpoint of building the kind of constituency that we would have under medicare for all to fight against policies of austerity and cuts to social and public spending, et cetera, like we can get there also in the process of building support for Medicare for all. And I, I think that the sort of like game of like, well, you know, we have to figure out the right way and we have to figure out the, you know, the right pathway to Medicare for all or the right glide path or incremental directional policy or whatever just really ignores the fact that like, no, actually people need to this is a, a a project of political education. This is a project of community building. This is a project of having conversations about how policies can change our lives versus the, how much policies are going to cost. And this is like a bigger, longer project than can just be accomplished by joining an organization. You know, as we fight for Medicare for All, I feel like we will build the kind of constituency that will then be even more powerful once it's passed. But it doesn't mean that in the meantime, we have to just like sit and take it like it's important to to talk about Medicare for all every day to like be thinking about it to be thinking about what's beyond Medicare for all because as we've said multiple times, uh, you know, it's not it's the first it, step. It, it, right. It's not a silver yeah. bullet itself, you know, it, and that that's something that I think is a nuance that's really missing from the conversation. No, no. And, and I think, Adam, like the, the, the value of I think your experience with with PNHP and I think that the potential that I see is that like there are ways of unlocking, you know, not just, you know, public opinion. There's all of this conversation about like the, you know, public supports Medicare for all. And it's and, and for me, it's like that public opinion is pretty, you know, manipulable. It's pretty inert. It's pretty like reactive to a lot of things. But what you're talking about, this seems so important is like unlocking numbers of people who are able to act together. Uh, in unison, collectively, in in a concerted way, but also just like the I think the valuable like takeaway is you were able to make changes in in what would it, what I would have guessed would be very very difficult fields to to till, um, and I, I think that that's just like that's a valuable thing to remember about like what the task is yeah. Uh, yeah. now. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you both raise great points. Um, you know, I think that, you know, one thing I think it's also good um, to get away from the binary of, uh, and this sort of somewhat relates to what, what you were saying, it's a little, a little separate. Um, it, it's good to get away from the binary of like, oh, do we fight for Medicare for all or do we do, you know, which might take no one knows how long. Um, or do we sort of fight for X, Y, and Z things that might be more short-term achievable? Um, mm -hmm. And I see no real evidence that that trade-off exists. I think that um, <laughs> a me Medicare for all <laughs> movement is very capable. I mean, there are going to be some of us who are going to sort of just, you know, stay on message and hammer, hammer one thing home. But, you know, th those who are connected with the movement are going to be very capable of fighting for environmental justice, against racial health inequalities, you know, for even short-term short kind of in incremental improvements, or at least helping to inadvertently, you know, helping indirectly to pave the way for incremental improvements, if only by, by if only by sort of making, making crystal clear how modest they are in, in you know, relationship <laughs> to like what it is we really want to achieve. 
Um, I, I think that we need to get away from that binary. And I think we are, you know, this is part of a larger movement. This is part of a larger movement for environmental justice, for racial health justice, um, for climate, um, for, for, for against climate change. Um, and I think, you know, by linking with those movements or those who focus on those, it, it only makes Medicare for all stronger. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's simply going to be the case. Um, the, the real reality is, is that, you know, we, there is no roadmap. Um, mm -hmm. There is no roadmap to success, unfortunately. Uh, and I think there's a natural desire to have a roadmap, but, um, uh, and I think there's a lot of things that can be done, but no one knows sort of what, what are the steps, what are the allies, what are the coalition that exactly needs to come together and crystallize in order to have enough power to, at that <laughs> point, you know, achieve this. Um, all we can do is what, you know, is, 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 is just continue to sort of like fight like hell for this today. Uh, Cause if we don't do that today, it's never going to be a reality tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way I view it all. Yeah. I, that's such a good way to put it. It's uh, it's like, we all have to just cure the austerity brain that we all have where we think you can only do one thing at once. You know, we can fight for health justice in the same fight that we're fighting for environmental justice, for racial justice. And I think it's all really, in a way, like part of a larger fight to reassert valuation of, of people's lives, to assert that people have value, that they have the right to survive regardless of their, quote unquote, deservingness to survive or their whether or not they're their conditions which like impact their ability to survive are their fault, right? And it's part of this like larger, I think, project to move away from eugenics in the United States and move towards like care that actually reflects the resources that we have to distribute and can distribute. It's just a matter of re reassessing what the parameters are that are like dictating where things are distributed now. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time. Absolutely. This, this was great. Where can people find you if they want to follow you and your work? Uh, at A.W. Gaffney uh, is my Twitter. It's probably the best. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of Medicare for All. Adam, thank you again. I can't thank you enough. And as always, Medicare for All now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Onward. Onward. <laughs> One week at a time. Yeah, exactly. This has been Medicare for All Week from the Death Panel. Medicare for All Week is an annual series presenting brand new interviews with activists, researchers, and others on building power toward Medicare for All, why we need it, and how to win it. Up next, in tomorrow's interview we speak with medical geographer, Ariana Plany about how for-profit health and hospital systems drive economic and racial inequality and uphold and reinforce structural racism. To support our show and make event series like Medicare for All Week possible, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod.